Open your Bibles or navigate on your devices to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 46 through 55. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. The topic, Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth and shares the wonderful news of her pregnancy in a song. The title of our message, Lady Sings the News. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious time of year. Uh, we, we certainly know the reason for the season. We celebrate your birth. Looking forward, Lord, to learning about your life. And then we see your death, Lord, and resurrection. And we think about all that you did and all that you've done, Lord, to bring us to salvation. Uh, we have burdens for our neighbors and our friends and our family, Lord, that don't know you. And uh, Lord, certainly this morning, if there's anyone in that category here, we pray that you would draw them by your everlasting love, Lord, into your kingdom. Right now, we just want to spend a few minutes uh, looking at the scriptures, Lord, because in them we find life, and uh, we know they're alive and powerful, and they testify of you. For that and many other reasons, Lord, we just uh, want to pay attention to what you have to say. Make sure that we have ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. Jesus refulsit omnium, corde natus ex parentis, adeste fidelis. It is in tongues. I don't have a brain tumor, I don't think, and it's not from Parkinson's. These are not spells from Harry Potter, and I am certainly not making fun of President Biden. <laughs> Shame on you. They are the Latin titles for what music historians consider the oldest Christmas hymns. Jesus Refulsit Omnium translates to Jesus, Light of All the Nations, written by St. Hilary of Poitiers in the 4th century. Corde Natus Ex Parentis translates to Of the Father's Love Begotten. Christian poet Prudentius wrote the poem that inspired this song in the 4th century. Adestas Fidelis is the familiar O Come All Ye Faithful, 1841, Away in a Manger, Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. These are probably what come to mind when you think about traditional Christmas carols. As classic as these songs are, none of them are really very old. There is in the Bible the overlooked oldest of the hymns of Christ's birth. You might know it by its Latin designation, Magnificat. It is found only in one place in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The Magnificat is one of four hymns recorded by Luke in response to the birth of Christ. The other three are Zechariah's Benedictus, the angel's Gloria in Excelsis Deo, and Simeon's Nunc Dimittis. Luke presented Christmas as a musical, or at least it had its own score. Christmas is a time for song. I honestly feel sorry for those who refuse to celebrate for one reason or another. They miss out on so much praise. Uh, they obviously talk about all of the things that, you know, have detracted from Christmas, the materialism and those kinds of things. But you miss out on so much praise in setting apart that time for Christ's birth. And by the way, have you been told that our celebration of Christmas has pagan roots? There is historical evidence that the opposite might be true. One historian wrote, and I quote, The pagan festival, the birth of the unconquered son, 
instituted by the Roman Emperor Aurelian on 25 December 274, was almost certainly an attempt to create a pagan alternative to a date that was already of significance to Christians. Thus, the pagan origins of Christmas is a myth without historical substance. If you're interested in uh, following up on that, Google Calculating Christmas. Or there's a, a link in our notes. If you get online, you can just click there. Calculating Christmas. Interesting article. Again, doesn't prove uh, that you know uh, Christmas was a Christian holiday, but there are alternatives. Uh, you know, the vote is still out. Nothing wrong with us celebrating Christ's birth. Now, we don't want to ruin the Magnificat by picking it apart. Happily, it suggests its own three movements. In verses 46 through 49, God is calling upon her life. uh, God's calling, rather, upon Mary's life draws praise. Then in verses 50 to 53, Mary sings about the Messiah transforming the world. And in verses 54 and 55, Mary's song finds its crescendo in God's trustworthy promises and prophecies. So let's set the scene within which this song was originally sung, first performed. Finding herself pregnant after the angel Gabriel's visit, Mary went to see her cousin Elizabeth to see if Elizabeth was also pregnant like the angel had told her she was. Elizabeth was visibly pregnant, being six months along in her pregnancy with John the Baptist. John went full Pentecostal, leaping inside her womb when Mary arrived. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth spoke a blessing over Mary. And then Mary began to sing, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Magnificat is Latin for magnify. In her case, Mary magnified God by rejoicing in him. She magnified him in a very small group uh, by rejoicing in what he was doing. Now, the doctrine of the virgin birth is implied in the Old Testament. It isn't revealed until later on in the New Testament. No one in Israel was anticipating a miraculous virgin birth. Uh, No one thought that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Jewish leaders would later accuse Jesus of being illegitimate. Mary was a young betrothed girl pregnant out of wedlock. Her condition was considered shameful socially and morally. Mary chose to believe God and to rejoice. And so I don't want to go any deeper than that into her situation. You understand this was, you know, we look back on it with the uh, lens of scripture and understand, you know, our understanding of the virgin birth and why it was necessary and all. And we think, what a glorious thing. But it would have been horrible for Mary. And yet she chose to rejoice. She didn't go to see a counselor. She went to see her cousin so that they could celebrate their pregnancies. Do you believe God? Then you can always choose to rejoice in your circumstances. Uh, There's a learning curve. Uh, You know, it's part of walking with the Lord. But it's always out there, a possibility for you to grab in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, When your circumstances are terrible, that's when you can rejoice the most. We applaud the person whose human spirit cannot be broken. William Wallace yelling, freedom, while being disemboweled, gets Mel Gibson an Academy Award. 
Why then do the smallest things rob our joy as believer? Why does anything, really? And so work on rejoicing this year in, uh, you know, during blessing and during buffeting. You'll notice that Mary sang about things in the past tense as if they had already occurred. Scholars call this the prophetic past tense, meaning it hasn't happened, but it most certainly will happen because God has prophesied it. And so it's a prophecy, but it's history because God said it was going to be done. Mary was 15 years old, maybe 16 tops. God has a habit of calling upon youth and giving them incredible assignments. David was the youngest in his family, just a youth, when he slew the Philistine giant. Uh, You know, nine feet tall, maybe as tall as 12 feet, depending on the measurement at that time, the measurements. Uh, David wasn't even in the battle because he was too young to be in the war. He was tending the sheep. And yet God sent him against that giant. Daniel and his three friends were youths, teenagers, when they were taken captive to Babylon. Jeremiah was about 17 years old when God called him to a very difficult ministry, uh, a ministry that was largely unsuccessful from a human point of view. A godly young man or woman, boy or girl, has the same Holy Spirit in them as an adult. God wants to use our young people, your young people. And so as we're raising our children or as we're interacting with young adults, children and young adults here at the church, uh, they can be used just as mightily as any adult and maybe sometimes more. And so let's encourage youth to live up to uh, the desire that God has to use them and to to really uh, fill them with his spirit. Mary was no theologian. Her song was spontaneous and inspired. She sang it with joy for an audience of three, two of whom were still in utero. Now, there are two ways we can approach Mary's song. We can approach it intellectually by looking at its various parts, or we can approach it devotionally by taking it as a whole. We're obviously going devotional. Our understanding of devotional is discovering what the Bible says to us without taking it out of its original context. Now, there's always something for us, but we need to be careful in some passages not to apply things that that don't really apply to us. Uh, And so, uh, but as long as you get into a, you know, look at a person like Mary or David or Jeremiah and say, hey, here's a general principle that would be true of all Christians at all time, uh, then that's what we mean by devotional. Looking at the Magnificat devotionally, we can say that it describes every servant God calls. Certainly, it's Mary's Magnificat, but it describes any servant that God calls. Mary's service was unique in the Christian story. There could only be one virgin who would bear uh, the God-man. But there are lots of saints like that whose names are known for a unique part that they played. The Bible is full of names of individuals who had unique parts to play in the Christian story from the time of the Garden of Eden all the way to the end. Mary is one of those people. And, uh, you know, they all bring glory to God. You are an unknown. I hate to break it to you. Uh, you. You may not think that, but you are an absolute unknown when it comes to 
uh, many things in the Christian story. To people, that is, not to God. But you are no less loved or blessed than Mary or any other servant. It is impossible for Jesus to love one servant more than another. God didn't love, Jesus didn't love Mary more than he loved anyone else. He chose Mary for a particular service. He doesn't not love you because you want to live in Riverdale. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it, you know, he loves you just the same. And so, but I mean, seriously, we're, you're in relative obscurity. If you live in Hanford, California, in Kings County, you live in relative obscurity. Uh, I mean, some people are well-known. There are some famous people that came from here, a couple that I can remember, Steve Perry. And then, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen him, but some people say he's still around. And who's that other guy that was uh, John? He had three names. Jan Michael Vincent. There you go. Who, by the way, paid for the ceiling in the Methodist church. I don't know if you know that, but last time I was at the Methodist church, they said, yeah, his mom went to that church and they have a beautiful ceiling. Take a field trip after But uh, you and I are relatively obscure when it comes to to the overall Christian life. But each of us has a part to play, a a unique part that no one else can play. And we need to quit trying to be like other people and be ourselves and do the work that God's called us to do. Jesus can't love one more than another. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Is God your Savior? If not, you can receive him right now. The Bible says Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. And and so as we come to a service like this, maybe you were invited, uh, maybe you're visiting, uh, you, you have an opportunity to hear the gospel. The gospel is very simple. It's the good news that you're a sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior than you're a sinner. And, and as a result of his death and resurrection, he can give you what the Bible calls righteousness or a right standing with God that you can't earn or deserve. And you can't get it any other way. And he takes your sin upon himself so that when God sees you, he sees Jesus. It's like one of those things where, you know, in the movie sometimes or on a TV show, somebody will be standing there and then somebody else will peek out from behind them. You didn't know they were there. That's you behind Jesus. Or my favorite thing ever after Charlie Brown. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie The Bear, that old movie The Bear? Anybody? Just it's, There's nothing wrong with it. It's about a bear. And uh, you can be a Christian and watch it, I think. Uh, but there's a scene, there's this little, this cute little bear cub, this grizzly bear uh, adopts a little bear cub, which never happens, they usually eat them, but in this movie it does. And so uh, at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, this little cub, so cute, you know, like all the little bear cubs you see on, on Twitter and all that, he starts getting chased by a cougar, a mountain lion. And I mean, there's no hope for this little guy, you know, and he barely gets away a couple of times, then he finally ends up on a beach. And, and the cougar is sneaking up on him. You know how cats do? I love that when my cat does that to me. And, uh, and then, you know, they show him. And so he turns around, he faces the cougar, and he goes up like this, and he starts going, eh, eh. And you think, what kind of movie is this? And then all of a sudden, the cougar starts to back up, and you hear this, eh, and it pans up, and the grizzly's behind him. And so that's a kind of the other perspective. So we're behind the Lord in terms of, uh, you know, how God sees us. 
But he's behind us in terms of how we deal with the world and Satan, who is the god of this world, who seeks to devour us. And so uh, uh, interesting visuals, right? So you can, you can get saved right now. And the Bible says you're commanded to. You should believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you because it's Christmas. Jesus came as God's indescribable gift to save you for time and for eternity. He talks about the spirit and the soul, or she does rather. She sings, a spirit refers to the immaterial part of humanity that connects with God. Human beings are souls. In its most basic sense, the word soul means life. It has been called the life essence of the body. Humans are born spiritually dead with souls blackened by sin. Believe Jesus and you are born again, born spiritually. You receive a new nature and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. It says here, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. A paraphrase of these words is, God took one good look at me and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. God took one good look at you. You were dressed in filthy garments. You were born with a sin nature and you were a sinner. There was nothing about you to commend you to God. If you've ever been to one of the funerals we've done, we almost always share the passage from Zechariah where God is looking down on Joshua, the great high priest at the time, and he's dressed and decked out in all those high priestly garments that they wore, the big fish hats and you know jewels all over him. He looks beautiful. But from heaven's point of view, he says he's dressed in filthy rags because they see the heart. They see the, the real person. And God says, take the filthy rags away and give him a robe of righteousness. And that's what salvation is like. Uh, God takes one look at you and he thinks you need saving. There's no hope for you. You can't wash your garments. You can't exchange your garments. You're going to die in your sins unless Jesus takes those garments upon himself and gives you his robe. Uh, And so Mary looked like that too. Um, I know the tradition I'm from, the Roman Catholic tradition, venerates Mary and, you know, says a bunch of stuff that's not true of her. But Mary, from a human point of view, or from a heavenly point of view, was dressed in filthy rags until she got saved uh, and believed in the Lord. And and so there was nothing holy about her, nothing to set her apart. She was a young Jewish girl who God chose for a particular uh, task. You were just what he was looking for to save and transform, to perfect you, to meet the Father as his bride. All generations will call me blessed doesn't only apply to Mary. Think of all the Bible's heroes and heroines whose names are upon our lips. Blessed. Think of all the famous Christians not in the Bible that we call blessed. The whole history of the church, as it were, and famous men and women whom God used in unique ways. You are no less blessed, though, as we've already talked about, you work in obscurity, no one ever knowing your name. I've come over the years to realize that being in obscurity, no one knowing your name, is a blessing in itself. You know who gets in trouble? People who get to be known on a national level or on a greater than local level, because then people start to vet them a little bit and say, what's this person really all about? And the deeper they dig, uh, the more they find out what you are all about, things that you don't want people to know. 
And so if you're an obscure person, thank God for it. And uh, if there's ever a television camera and a microphone stuffed in your mouth, just say Jesus and run. Uh, that's all you need to know. Never, <laughs> never talk to reporters. Unless you are a professional double talker, uh, don't ever talk to reporters unless, you're, unless you seriously are going to talk about the Lord in such a way that they can't edit it out, right? How many people have you talked to say, well, I didn't say that, or they edited out this part, uh, and so every, <coughs> Jesus, every now and then, <coughs> Jesus, uh, you know, you just have to keep bringing that up, uh, do something like that. So it's okay, you're better off if nobody knows who you are. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Our God is holy, which in part means that on account of his perfection, he can do nothing wrong or evil. We can therefore trust that great things are happening in our lives as we walk with him. Now, I admit sometimes I apply this wrongly by thinking, that's just great, Lord. That's not the kind of great things that uh, we're talking about. We don't always recognize all things working together for our good, but we know that they are because God is almighty and he loves us. And so here's my life. And I just, there is no way I see all things working together for good. Uh, whatever I'm going through, it, 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 there's nothing good can come out of it. But I know that God is almighty and I know he loves me. And so therefore, uh, I can trust him that this is great. Now, a new movement in the song begins in verse 50. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. From generation to generation, God oversees history. He has the watch. He acts providentially to fulfill his promises and push forward his agenda of redeeming the human race and ruined creation. No matter how much the plan of redemption seems to be in jeopardy, believers in every generation, those who fear him, experience God's mercy. I'm just going to throw this out. Maybe 80 or 90 percent of the articles I read in Christian magazines and journals are negative about the church. They're about how we're failing, how you're failing in so many ways. People love to hear that negative news, I guess. Uh, it's just like the regular news. You know, it's, it's, you know, man bites dog is news. You know, dog bites man isn't. And so they, everybody's exhorting all the time. One thing I know, despite myself, the church cannot fail. God's program cannot fail. He's not in heaven wringing his hands wondering if any of us are going to fail. He's got it, and, and it's going to work out. Those who fear him in every generation experience God's mercy. Uh, verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Throughout history, there are proud, mighty, and rich individuals who hold earthly power. They always seem to be winning. They're not. Time after time, God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. One example will suffice, Pharaoh of Egypt and Moses. Get the idea? Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth probably at the time, or obviously in that part of the earth, uh, the Jews... Millions of them held captive for 400 years as slaves. And Moses walks out of the desert with a staff. And you know how that ended up, right? 
It ended up with Pharaoh and his army being drowned in, their, you know, in the Red Sea and the creation of a new nation, uh, the nation of Israel. And that, that's always the way it is. Now, Mary lists certain reversals. The reversals listed herald the changes to come in the future kingdom of God on earth. Uh, God is going to come and establish his kingdom. Jews, when they thought Messiah, they thought kingdom. So if you say, well, I don't see the kingdom mentioned here. Sure. Anytime you're talking about the Messiah, you're talking about his kingdom. And that was a present hope of the Jews. Every Jew was uh, excited about the coming of the kingdom on earth. Satan is the current ruler of this world, we're told in the New Testament. At one point in history, he had a throne in the city of Pergamum. We read about it in uh, the book of the Revelation. But God had a church there. Believers may be lowly and hungry, but the church cannot fail. When you think about these, uh, the churches in Asia that Jesus wrote to in the book of the Revelation, they probably weren't mega churches. They were probably small fellowships. Uh, I mean, uh, some of these, as I was doing the research back in the, we were studying Revelation, I mean, if you had 100 or 200 people coming to church, that was huge in those days uh, and stuff. And so, you know, one of the juxtapositions here is that Satan's throne. Well, that, that seems like a pretty powerful thing to fight against. And then there's this little tiny group of believers. And, and the church just cannot fail because Jesus said it wouldn't fail. And he oversees it. So we're, we're on the right side of history. Believers will be lowly and hungry. They'll be in need in this uh, time in which we live. The church age is a time when we magnify the Lord in our weaknesses and sufferings. The Apostle Paul wrote, now this is, this is his situation, but it is really the situation of most Christians. He says, I, uh, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations given me, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, more, uh, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches in needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God can and does heal. We pray for healing and we, we believe God for it. But if we're honest, healings are few and far between. Either the church is failing, as many suggest, or we're living in a time during which having a thorn in the flesh is a greater testimony than a healing would be. Paul ended that section by saying, I take pleasure Infirmities, your approaches, in needs, and persecutions, and distresses, for Christ's sake. What we do a lot of times, I've done it myself, we seek counseling for those things. We say, hey, I'm going through this at work, and I don't want to anymore. What, what am I supposed to do? You could end your counseling career by just saying, well, take pleasure in that. Next, there's a, a funny video. I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, Bob New. Bob Newhart, where he's a counselor. Have you seen this? He's, he's like the counselor, and he says he can solve your, pro, your problems in five minutes. And uh, essentially, after you, you share them, he goes, get over it! You know, and, and 
or something to that effect. And so, you know, Paul the Apostle, I mean, if you came to him with some of these complaints, I'm being persecuted at work and it's so distressing and, and I feel like they reproach me in the break room. Paul would say, take pleasure in that. Praise the Lord. Somebody knows that you're a Christian. You're making a difference. And, and uh, you know, that's the attitude we want to have. The final movement of the Magnificat is about Mary's people, the nation of Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. God determined to call out a special people for himself. And through that special people, he would bless the whole world with the Messiah. He chose Abram to be the father of that new people, the nation of Israel. He would later change Abram's name to Abraham, the father of many. God's unconditional promise included land. It was a specific land, an actual property with dimensions specified to belong to Israel forever. Joel Richardson writes, among the most critical matters of urgency for the church in this hour is acquiring a biblical view of Israel, exposing the spreading cancer of anti-Semitism, arrogance, and misinformation within the body of Christ is one of the most important challenges of our day. Now, I don't think it's being done necessarily for anti-Semitism or for wrong reasons, but there are a lot of uh, contemporary theologies, ways of believing, that discredit or discount Israel as an ethnic nation and say that, well, when you read about you know, Israel in the Old Testament, it's just that they were God's people and now we're God's people. And, and so whatever God promised to Israel was really not to them as a nation. It was just to whoever is God's people. And that does a couple of things. Uh, it it kind of does uh, prejudice against Israel uh, because you're saying, yeah, the Jews aren't important. They don't matter as a people. But it also says that God can violate his own promises. And so when God comes to Abraham and very specifically says, your people, your descendants, your seed, physical descendants are going to have this land. And then we come along and say, ah, that, that, you know, it doesn't have to be that. Well, then God, if he cannot keep his promises to Abraham, maybe he cannot keep his promises to you. And so it's very important why, when we're having these discussions about theology and belief and all that, that, that people understand Israel is back in the Middle East for a reason. It's a miracle. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Every week, pretty much, we do a prophecy update, and we say, well, this could turn into what the Bible says. No, when you talk about Israel being a nation again, it is a modern miracle fulfillment of prophecy. God is going to deal with his nation just as he said he would, uh, and they will exist as a nation forever. And the church is different than Israel. We're a mystery that is revealed in the New Testament. And so don't, don't go all anti-Semite with your theology. Uh, and, and certainly we want to believe God is a promise-keeping God, an incredible promise-keeper. If anyone deserved to be abandoned by God, it was Israel. Their history is full of rebellion and idolatry. But God continually helped Israel, calling them his servant. We see all the rebellion and disobedience of Israel in the Old Testament. And yet Mary, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is bringing forth this idea that God is still being merciful, keeping his promise by bringing the Messiah through the nation of Israel and her in particular. God has begun a good work in you. He will complete it despite your efforts sometimes to go your own way. 
He has a, a way of bringing you back. Think of your life as a musical. PG the musical, right? A lot of people here call me PG, Pastor Gene. I think it's cute. I love it. You, I do. You can call me whatever you want. You can call me Ray. Wasn't there a song like that? You can call me Ray. What is the audience experience as folks watch your musical? What would be your score on Rotten Tomatoes? Because you can be sure people are watching, but here's an even better way of thinking about it. Each of us as believers in Jesus Christ are writing our own musical. Our thoughts and our actions, our decisions, all of that contribute to it. Mary's song was a Magnificat. Our song, our musical, can likewise be a Magnificat as we choose rejoicing, bringing glory to God. You want your life to bring glory to God? I do. I know you do too. It would be Gene's Magnificat or Josh's Magnificat or whatever. And so, you know, it's not Mary, not her Magnificat. It's her soul rejoicing in the Lord and glorifying God. And that is true of each and every one of us potentially, right? Amen. Father,